These are familiar words. They are taken from Paul's letter to Corinth, the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 23. When you come together to eat, it isn't the Lord's Supper you are eating, but your own. For I am told that everyone gobbles all the food he can without waiting to share with others so that one does not get enough and another goes away hungry. What? Is this really true? Can't you do your eating and drinking at home to avoid disgracing the church and shaming those who are poor and can bring no food? What am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly do not. For this is what the Lord himself has said about his table, and I have passed it on to you before, that on the night when Judas betrayed him, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks to God for it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take this and eat it. This is my body which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new agreement between God and you that has been established and set in motion by my blood. Do this in remembrance of me whenever you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the message of the Lord's death that he has died for you. Do this until he comes again. So if anyone eats this bread and drinks from this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he is guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. This is why a man should examine himself carefully before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if he eats the bread and drinks from the cup unworthily, not thinking about the body of Christ and what it means, he is eating and drinking God's judgment upon himself, for he is trifling with the death of Christ. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and that is why some of you have even died. But if you carefully examine yourselves before eating, you will not need to be judged and punished. Yet, when we are judged and punished by the Lord, it is so that we will not be condemned with the rest of the world. Amen. Men and women place their faith in strange things. I'll never forget the first time that I had to undergo a major operation. I remember so well talking with the doctor after the x-rays had been made and the surgery had been indicated and I'd been informed of the seriousness of it all. There came into my room in the hospital a nurse about an hour before the procedure was to be initiated and gave me an injection. There were friends of mine. My wife was there. One of my best friends was present. And a minister friend had a prayer with me. And then they came in with a cart. They lifted me over onto the cart. They put up the side rails and started pushing me down the corridor of the hospital. And I remember looking up at the ceiling as I went down. And then I saw two big doors with surgery marked on them. 
Then I went into the surgery and into one of the operating theaters. I looked at the tiled room and the surgeon whom I had met. The injection was beginning to have its effect on me now. And then they came forward, the anesthetist, and placed a needle in one of the veins in my arm and began to inject some fluid called sodium pentothal and asked me to count. I had prayed, but I remember the strange feelings that came to my mind. And as I counted, I drifted away into the anesthetic world. And in etherized objectivity, I lay on a table, and the surgeons began their work on me that day. My life was literally held in their hands, physically speaking. I did not know the surgeon well. I did not know the anesthetist. I didn't know the people in the operating room. But somehow I had faith and trust in them. We're like that. We place our faith sometimes into the hands of people simply because we feel we have to trust them at that point. Well, God speaks to us about faith, faith that is far more serious than any earthly bit of surgery that might be carried out. When he speaks to us about the forgiveness of sins, and when he speaks to us about victory over death and about eternal life, he speaks to us through this supper called the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion or the Eucharist or the Sacrament or the Mass. He speaks to us here, and he speaks in a language of love. And throughout the world today, as the sun began to rise out in the Pacific Ocean and the Fiji Islands, and as it began to make its light shown and move toward us, millions and millions of worshipers have met in churches and in cathedrals, and out on beaches, and in storefront mission for the celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now, what does it mean? About 56 A.D., Paul had gone to the city of Corinth, and there he had sought to preach and to teach a message of good news of God's love founded upon the cross of Jesus Christ, and in the first few Verses of the first chapter, he tells the people that he did not come amongst them as a philosopher. No, he didn't even come as a theologian. But he came saying that the word that he preached would not be with the enticing wisdom of men's words, but in a demonstration of the power of God, the dynamite of God. That in the cross of Jesus Christ there was power by which a man might be forgiven his sins, and might have victory over death in his whole life transformed. And so obsessed was Paul with that cross of Jesus Christ that in every one of his letters you will find him make mention of it. And there in that evil and wicked and licentious city of Corinth, where people worship the sex goddess, Aphroditus, where in drunken debauchery they worship Bacchus, 
Paul said sternly to them, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. There are moral impossibilities here, but you must make your choice. And when they had come together in their love feast and when it had degenerated into quarrels and selfishness, Paul felt constrained to remind them of the seriousness of the Holy Supper and to remind them with very straightforward language that has come down through the centuries and which speaks to us to this day and which he means for us to remember upon this worldwide communion Sunday. The first obvious lesson which this is to teach us is to remember something. And what he wanted us to remember there was something which had occurred hundreds and hundreds of years before in Egypt, when God, who had selected a people and called them out for a specific purpose, and those people were in bitterness and in bondage in Egypt, were finally delivered by the miraculous power of God and the festival of the Passover was instituted. And down through the centuries it was to be celebrated as a deliverance by the Almighty, of those who were called out by his name. Until at last, God sent his own son into the world. His own son who was to be the perfect sacrificial lamb and who was born to be crucified so that we might be redeemed from our sins. And when the Lord Jesus was born into the world and that last night in the upper room he looked into the anxious faces of his own followers who had been quarreling on the way to the place of the Passover about which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. And when they walked inside, Jesus stripped his robe away and picked up a basin and washed their feet and said, the greatest among you will be your servant. And then as they began to eat of the bitter herbs that reminded them of the bondage in Egypt. And as they broke the unleavened bread with its sharp crackle as it broke, Jesus reached over and took some of the bread and held it and broke it and looked them in the eye. And the emphasis here is upon the verb, broken. He said, this is my body, broken for you. This is my body, broken for you. And he broke it, and he passed the bread. And almost like a commander gives orders, he said, take, eat. Take, eat. What do we do when we look at the supper this way? Tradition tells us that in a Jewish service, the youngest member of the family would ask that question that we read about in Exodus a moment ago. What do you mean by this service? And so when we ask that question, what do we mean by this service? We mean that we are to remember Jesus Christ. This little boy in the Presbyterian church that I attended as a child in Texas I used to look up at the communion table and I saw carved in the word the words carved in the wood in remembrance of me. And it's strange what impressions that makes upon a child's mind in remembrance of me. 
to remember how much he loved me and how he had given himself for me. And then when he took the cup, the cup which he had blessed and passed that cup to those who were present, telling them to all drink of it. Now, when Paul thought of this, Paul's great mind was so full of what God had done for him that he could only say, I have been crucified with Christ. That's the greatest identification you can ever make. By faith, if I trust in that surgeon, why won't I trust my Savior? Trust him to take away my sins and to give me victory over death. I trust myself to his lordship and place myself at his disposal when I come to his cross and when I come to his table. This is our greatest need, faith. Faith in all that this communion service is about. Faith that tells us to remember Jesus Christ and what he has done to redeem us. This is the mystery of communion. You know the word communion, koinonia, means fellowship. And a friendship, a real friendship, is composed of three things. Number one, it takes time. Number two, there is sacrifice. And number three, there is mutual interest. Yesterday, I had three long-distance telephone calls. One from a Christian, friend of mine out in Kansas. He was asking me to speak at an evangelism conference, and he said, do you know the Catholic priest is going to cooperate with us, and we're all so happy about this. And I thought about my friend out there, and the joy that was in his heart, the strictest Missouri Synod Lutheran you ever saw, elated that the Roman priest was coming to participate in a conference on evangelism in November. Happy. He has taken time with me, and I have taken time with him. He has made sacrifices for me, and I have made sacrifices for him. And we have our mutual interest, which is sharing faith in Jesus Christ. Another telephone call from a man in South Florida. And I thought about him in Miami, and last year at the Orange Bowl, because I was a guest in his home, he wanted me and he wanted my wife to sit in a good place, and he had an excellent place right behind the astronauts in the big Orange Bowl parade. He took the invitation with his name written there, who had been the chairman of the committee, and he scratched through it, and he wrote my name and my wife's name. He wanted us to have these seats, and he went way out in the crowd someplace. Just a little thing, some may think. But it showed he cared. And it showed an interest. We had a mutual interest in sharing faith in Jesus Christ and in growing in Christ. And this is represented in communion. This is represented here. The other man called, and what would he be talking about? We've known each other for 20 years. Another long-distance call from Florida, and it was about Christ. And it's not because I'm in the preaching business, because I'm not in the preaching business. 
I am a slave of Jesus because I belong to him. He bought me with his blood. And if you belong to him, you're a slave of his too. And because of his love for you, you respond with love and you give yourself back to him. And you give yourself to him in this communion when you identify with him in your time and in your sacrifice and in your mutual interest because you become one with him. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, that his old nature had died away, and yet he said, I live. And yet Paul said, it is not I that live. It was the crucifixion of Paul's ego. He died to self that Christ might live in him. But Christ lives in me, and the real life I now have within this body is a result of my trusting in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And what has been the testimony of the saints about this crucifixion with Christ? Dying with him on the cross, what would you have done that day if you'd been out to Golgotha and you had seen them nail him to a cross and raise him up there? And if you realize truly in your heart that he was dying for you, dying for you as an individual. What would be your response? Paul's response is to say, I'm one with him. I will crucify my old nature so that I may live with him and that he may live in and through me. Samuel Rutherford, the greatest of all the Scottish mystic preachers, was one like Paul. And do you know what he said about the cross of Jesus? He said, the cross of Jesus is the sweetest burden that ever I bore. He said, it's such a burden as sails are to a ship and as wings are to a bird. It lifts me up. And that's it with Christ. When we come to his table, we are identified with him. These are symbols here. They're symbols of how much he loved us. They're outward signs of something that is meant to take place in our heart. This afternoon, two young people will stand here and be married. I will take a ring, and according to the old Westminster service, as the agent of God, I will bless the ring. And I will say, bless, O Lord God, this ring, that he who gives it and she who wears it may abide in thy love and continue in thy favor until their life's end. And I will hand it back, and he will place the ring on her finger. This is what communion is. You are saying to Jesus Christ, you have given your all to me, and I am giving my all to you. I am asking you to take me. Now what about my sins and examining myself? He wants to forgive your sins. He wishes to forgive them. That's what this is about, his love for you, how much he loves you. And if you're fearful of taking communion and you're willing to confess your sins to him and you understand that he loves you so much that he died for you, then reach out and take it. It's made specially 
specially for you. Take it. It tells you that God is for you, that Jesus loves you, that he gave himself to redeem you. Let us bow in prayer. O Lord our God, as we now begin to sing unto thee this great hymn of preparation, help us to survey that wondrous cross. Help us to think of the great sacrifice made in newer love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. And for those whose sins have risen up to condemn them, show them that this love is more than sufficient to bear all their guilt away. And now, O God, bless us that we may take this supper for the nourishment of our souls, to the glory of our Savior, so that we may be empowered to live more definitely for him. In his name, amen.